I think it is so important to understand that, you know, in a, in a world that we live in, how much consumption and, and more and, and search for more there is versus a real contentment and love for what you have. It's special because we don't ask for big donations of 50 or $100 or, or whatever. We, we say that one simple contribution of $2, you know, the world around and add it up can make a huge, huge impact. You know, you have to feel it to heal it. And it's something that I always have to go back to as well because I can continue to bury things that, that, that you know, come up and, and things I need to address. But these are the things that can bring you great mental health if you can deal with it and talk about it. It's only going to be, you know, beneficial for you and, and, and your mind. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. Welcome back, lovely neighborhood. I hope you enjoyed our little throwback re-release last week, and I promise the guest we had to postpone will be well worth the wait in a few weeks' time. As for today's guest, if you haven't heard of him personally, you will definitely know of some of his incredible work through one of the world's greatest examples of using business success for good. And that in itself is one of the cleverest things about the Cotton On Foundation, that so many of you could have made a positive impact by shopping as you might have anyway, maybe even without realizing, and that it makes a philanthropist out of us all, combining the power of all our smaller purchases so we can together make an impact without having millions of dollars. And Tim Diamond, today's guest, is the Foundation's General Manager, who's been there since its establishment and helped grow it to the incredible vehicle for change it has become today. You'll be able to hear how Tim has absolutely found his purpose and see his own growth interweave with the foundation's growth over the years. But like always, he didn't just land there one day. And I love that there's a signature right place, right time sliding doors moment in the mix as well. You'll also hear how despite his very impressive role, he's still a talky boy and a chiller dad at heart. I'll let Tim tell you the rest and hope you are as inspired as I was. We were hoping dearly that I would be able to go to Cotton On headquarters to record this in person, but of course we're still in lockdown in Victoria. So we had to do it by Zoom with a little bit of background noise, but I'm sure you will enjoy it nonetheless. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sarah. It is so good to be on the show and, and have a chat to you. I love, uh, you know, first time back in the office for me as well. So it's um, super exciting. Oh, welcome back. I mean, it's a big outing. I kind of feel like we're all just starting to feel like normal humans again. Absolutely. From being <laughs> the quasi homeschooling teacher dad to being back in the office is, uh, is a good feeling. I'll tell you right now, it is a good feeling. Well, the icebreaker for every episode is actually what the most relatable thing is about you. And the quasi homeschooling teacher dad sounds pretty down to earth to me. I kind of feel like 2020, it's just such a great leveler of people. It is, isn't it? Totally. I think it's actually the perfect example of, you know, I actually let myself go through COVID. You know, it was probably a year. I had a haircut last week. It was actually a year 
that I let my hair grow. I had a beard that was a growth of about three or four months. So I was literally the jungle man. <laughs> my wife called me, I think, animal from what's the uh, what's the from the Muppets. <laughs> You've just got to tidy yourself up. This is starting to become ridiculous. So, um, so yeah. Well, being a, a stay-at-home dad, you know, working, juggling life, and and home teaching, I just let myself go. You know that some people actually try and achieve the caveman chic look on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> I don't know about that. If you had to see me. You would have said that is not something you want to aspire to but anyway well you are definitely <laughs> not alone there I've been through my own cavewoman phase in ISO and then semi come back out of it done a full circle but I knew we were doing video today so it's actually quite a boost to look a bit presentable again <laughs> yep absolutely so let's jump into the first section your way to yay which is the journey of how you got to where you are today I think we so often meet someone at a certain stage in their lives where they seem really fulfilled and joyful and successful, but easily forget how many other phases they had to go through first to actually get there. So take us back to the very, very beginning. What were you like as a young child and what did you think that you wanted to be? I, um, I grew up in Torquay on the, on the surf coast, a uh, little coastal town, and it was really a, a semi-charmed life. You know, I, I grew up with three older brothers. There's about a 10, 10 year gap between me and my, my brothers, but, wow. um, you know, they were just footy heads. They loved surfing. They were at the beach. They were just outdoors, you know, kind of guys. And, and mum and dad just would lock the door and kick us out. So, you know, little Timmy had to trot along with, with the big bros and they kind of looked after me, but not. So, you know, got into a bit of mischief and, you know, learned the hard way a few different things in, in life. But it was just, it was beautiful. You know, great upbringing, uh, loving parents and uh, just a, you know, a beautiful community in, in Torquay, especially, you know, coming through the 80s and into the 90s. It was so small. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, the much glory different days. To, to what we see today. But, you know, I remember we had these amazing trips we started to go to the, the Gold Coast up in Queensland every couple of years. And, and it was funny. I still got you know, fond memories of the Nissan skyline. And my brothers are pretty burly. So I'd be kind of shoved in the middle and, and hidden for 24 hours as we drove up the highway. But <laughs> we would drop into places like uh, Dog on the Tucker Box and the Big Banana. And Dad would get us out and we're going to have a look. And he'd go, all right, boys. 10 minutes and then we're back in the car. So it was a, it was a long haul and but we'd finally get up there and it was just like, you know, Gold Coast in the 80s was its, its prime and, and we just loved it. And, and again, just like Torquay, I'd just follow my brothers around. They would, they would love it, you know, getting around to the beach and to SeaWorld. And actually one of my memories was coming back from SeaWorld and we stayed in a little apartment block and I think we're on about the second level and my brothers... Uh, grab me, I don't know why, but they felt like they grabbed me by the ankles and dangled me over the, uh, the balcony. And, and oh I still remember God. that today, them laughing and shaking me and, and then pulling me back over. But that was kind of the high risk and no reward lifestyle that those boys lived. And, and I think you know, little, little Timmy sort of went along for the ride. But it was, you know, we had amazing family time. We're still a really close knit family. You know, myself and my brothers, and, and we all actually live in Torquay now, which, you know, we went off on our different tangents around the world and, and came back and we're settled with you know kids and, and wider families and it's just a it's just a beautiful place to be so oh, um, how lovely yeah. yeah it was it was great you know there's and I think you know I was lucky enough to go on a lot of uh, you know little trips around the place but then later on uh, you know travel around the world as well which was super uh, I was super lucky you know dad was a, a salesman and, and I remember he had a, a conference in the US and that was kind of our first international trip and it was just a 
it was an amazing journey, but uh, you know, just to, we went to LA, went to Disneyland, we, we did all the fun stuff. And, and I think that's where I got this sort of bug for, for travel. You know, that, that was probably when I was about 14 and, and just wanted to see the world. And, and from there it was kind of, you know, what can I do next? And I guess I was pretty obsessed by that. Aside from sport and, and staying active, it was like, you know, where can I go and how can I get there? And, and that kind of led me through, I guess, high school. Uh, I love the camaraderie, but I wasn't overly academic. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I sort of wanted to kind of hit the road pretty early and, and pretty much straight after high school, I, I had a gap year and went across to the US and, and worked over there, did the, the summer camp thing for sort of six months. and then Like the Camp America kind of thing? Camp America, yeah, that's it. Met some amazing people there, worked, you know, the odd job through sort of Florida and, and, and traveled up towards sort of New York and spent you know, 12 months away as, as a 18 year old. And, and that was really eye opening, you know, in a, in a different place in a different environment. And I think, again, that just really ignited that, that sense of adventure in, in me and, and wanting to do more. And I, I think that last year of school, one of the things that sort of sits with me, I, I, I remember watching the movie Jerry Maguire and <laughs> I think it was the, the biggest movie of the year back in, you know, when I was in year 11 and it was the whole sports agent glitz and glamour. And I thought, that's me. I'm, I'm going to get into that. And, you know, that was kind of the pathway I kind of took. It was get across the US, see what kind of jobs I could do. But then I came back to Australia and, and did a course in uh, sports management. And that was at what was called Ballarat Uni at the time, which is now Federation University. But I loved it again. It was a four-year double degree course in uh, in sports management and, and and regular business management. But yeah, I made some great friends, and again, very similar to my upbringing, just sort of small town, close knit community, and just great people. And you know, loved every moment. And and then from there, it was you know, find a job after that, which took me to to Queensland and and into again, you know, sports field, but into uh, event management and worked at a, a resort up in up in the Gold Coast, and uh, and that was you know, an amazing year or so as well, where there was some incredible organizations running some massive events. And just, I think for me, you know, the kind of the line in the sand was just how much money was being spent on these elaborate events. And, mm. you know, the, the, I guess the waste that was associated with that, but no, it, they're fantastic for those that want to do it, but it just wasn't for me. And I think the days of Jerry Maguire wore off pretty quick and I, uh, I luckily um, you know, came back to earth pretty quick as well, which, which is exactly what I needed, I think. I love this though because I think it's so important to discover what you don't want to do. I think some people tend to think if they've gone down a pathway and found that they didn't enjoy it or it wasn't for them, they get a bit concerned that it was a waste of time because we're, so, we're always rushing to kind of get to the end and be productive with every minute. But I actually think spending time finding out what you don't like is as important as finding out what you do like, if, if not more important, because you actually get an answer rather than drifting along and kind of being like a bit blah or fine with your career. And you also mentioned tangents, like you all started in the same place, but then you all went off on little tangents, but then came back again. And I think that reminds us that your pathway is actually meant to go off on diversions and ventures, even if you do end up coming back to the same place in the end. And what I enjoy so much about tracing right back to the beginning is watching all the small threads of experiences or realizations along the way that start to kind of build up to where we know you ended up, even if you didn't know at the time, like your trip to the Gold Coast and then America and just how formative they were. I really think travel just expands our mind so much, especially as a young child. So back then and through all those experiences, 
what were your ideas of jobs or career paths? You know, you've obviously ended up in philanthropy, but at yeah. uni, I don't think yeah. I even knew that that was a word. I think we really, we just start off with such a narrow idea of what jobs even yeah. exist. Totally. And I think you kind of pigeonhole yourself into certain things, but I, I really believe that travel opened up, really opened up my mind, you know, and, and I knew pretty early on that it was about people more so for me, finding great people to work with. And that again, just changed, I guess my whole philosophy, it kind of opened up more doors and said that, you know what, I can do more than just this narrow road that I've chosen. There's so many more things that you can do. And I think that kind of led me to being really open and, and probably led me to you know, meeting you know, Nigel who, who owns Cotton On and, and, and that meeting was something that was again, a, a fork in the road and an amazing opportunity for, for me. So, and I, and I kind of liken it to, you know, you mentioned before about, you know, often different tangents and, and as a child experiencing different things and opens your mind. And I think that is, as a dad, that is so important. And it's something that I've really actively tried to do for, for my kids is, you know, give them different opportunities to really experience themselves and, and open their own mind. And, and I'll probably get to that soon, but you know, how we've kind of, as a family, you know, been involved with the work of the foundation and it is so important. Yeah. And I also, I'm fascinated by when people do make a big pivot away from an industry that's quite different to the one they end up in, it's often not somewhere they expected it to be. But it's also, I think once you decide that you're not necessarily happy in something, that period where you start agitating for change is quite uncomfortable. It's yeah. quite uncertain. It's sort of like, well, I'm not happy here, but what else am I going to do? Like, this is what I always thought I would do. And, and I've been there going from law to business. And I know that, you know, you just mentioned you started to feel like the excessive nature of the consumption started to kind of weigh down on you. And meeting Nigel from Cotton On was obviously a big sliding doors moment. But in the meantime, how were you making that? How were you dealing with that sense of like, this is not for me? Because I think a lot of people get that feeling, then don't know what to do with it. They don't know whether to look for another job. Were you specifically looking for philanthropy or were you just open-minded to meeting anyone? Were you trying to leave or were you just kind of scoping out your options? Yeah. You know, were you looking for a jump? I kind of think that's the part our brains struggle a lot with. It is, absolutely. And I, again, I think I was in a, I was in a pretty extreme position in that, that, you know, like I mentioned before, there was so much money being spent. I was actually living on the Gold Coast. So if anywhere in Australia, you're going to have a look at sort of consumption, that's probably the place. So I was probably at the extreme. And I, I think coming from a small town in, in my background, I, I felt like I was drifting too far from the real who I am and, and had to get back to that, had to understand what was my purpose without really knowing what it was at that point on, on reflection. And I think, again, that shift in my mindset I believe opened up other doors and I think it put me on the right path where, uh, you know, I, I did have that, that encounter and that connection with, you know, a great man in, in, in Nigel and an opportunity come up. And I think that's where, you know, things happen for a reason. And, and, you know, that was one of those things that just uh, popped up at the right time. And, you know, from there it was just, um, it's been a, an incredible roller coaster. So, so exciting and such a wonderful thing to remind everyone that things do pop up. Like it's important to have plans and dreams and set yourself up as best you can for opportunity to find you, but also it can just drop on you anytime. Like I don't yeah. think you could have predicted the day before you met Nigel what was going to happen when you actually Right. You know, yeah. started those conversations. But I think we look very, very hard for things to happen without just staying open-minded to the fact that 
any conversation, any interaction could be the one that leads you to something new and you can't stay closed off to that. Otherwise, you don't get to see what might actually come of it. So you met Nigel through a mutual friend in what you kind of refer to as like right time, right place. And then it looks from the outside like suddenly you were just the general manager of a foundation. Like you've gone from event management in the Gold Coast to global scale, (laughs) massive foundation. So from that first meeting, did you both go on the trip to Uganda together? Like how did everything then just escalate? (laughs) Yeah, well, I think he, at that time, he had made a a contribution to a little village in Uganda called Manya. And that was through his his local parish here in in Geelong called St. Bernard's. And he, uh, you know, he, he wanted to see where the money was going. So I was lucky enough to meet him in Brisbane and, and he said, look, I've got a job for you. I'm not sure exactly what it is at this point, but my plans or our plans was, was absolutely to go home because we we're expecting our first child. So we, we packed up, headed back to Torquay. I rocked up on his doorstep one day and just started working for him. And, and it, was, it wasn't immediately with the foundation. It was supporting um, some local not-for-profits and, and some work that he wanted to do, which was awesome. And I loved it. And that sort of kicked things off. But as I mentioned, he, he wanted to go and see where this money had gone across to Africa. So he jumped on a plane with one of his best mates, spent a few days on the ground. And this is a massive journey to spend you know, two or three days. He got there, realized the money had actually got to this village in Mania and that they'd spent the money on what they said they were going to spend it on, which was medical supplies. And so he was just blown away, firstly, of being there in Africa and seeing what a difference was being made in this small Ugandan village. But he fell in love with the place and said, there is so much more we've, we've got to do. And I was in the business at the time. I still remember him coming in the door like a whirlwind, like Nigel's, and put his hand on my shoulder and said, mate, you've got to get across there. And I kind of laughed at first. I thought, he was, I thought he was joking. And he said, yeah, you've got to get on a plane. There's so much to do. And I just went home and I said, Celeste looks like I'm going to Uganda. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like this is, this is 14 years ago. I was 25, 26 at the time. And, you know, we just had our first baby only a few months old and, and naturally she was a little little apprehensive. Fair enough. <laughs> and, I, and but you know, we, we, talk, we talked about it and, and thought what an amazing opportunity. It just felt right. You know, like everything else, we said yes. We said yes to the opportunity and, and you know, in a really positive, optimistic way, we said let's take the next step. And, and I was lucky enough to, to get that opportunity and, and jumped on a plane, spent a month in, in Uganda. But back then, like, you know, it was a it was a massive journey. It was from Melbourne. You, you went through Dubai, dropped off in Ethiopia. I went via Nairobi and, and straight into Uganda. So it was, it was about 40 hours in transit. And I got off the plane. I, I was met there by a, a local guy from the village in a pickup truck. And I threw my, literally threw my rucksack in the back of the truck and jumped in the passenger seat. And, and there was an Oki strap that I had to use to, to tie down the door. Like it didn't even lock. So... <laughs> Off we went on this journey. It was this rugged eight-hour bumpy ride into the you know the deep unknown into into Uganda and and these rural villages and and just like the place. As soon as I landed, I was just captivated. It is like just beautiful, green, lush, tropical on the you know largest inland lake in in Africa, Lake Victoria. Mm. Um, just a beautiful place right on the equator. And, and you know, I got there late at night. I was just exhausted. Went to sleep, you know, woken up by thunderstorms and rain. And it was really dark when I got up in the morning, but I was so excited just to see where I was and, and look around and walk around the village and meet people and woke up, put my hood on, you know, the rain was pelting down and I walked down past the village on the left and you couldn't see anyone. There wasn't 
anyone at the front of their homes or the little stores that were there in the main street. I kept walking down, you know, past those stores and, and I walked you know, towards a little mud hut and I, I stood in the doorway, this, this mud hut, and I peered in and as my eyes adjusted to light, you know, I saw this beautiful African woman on the left of me uh, who I later found out was the teacher and about 30 kids huddled up in the corner and <gasps> on the right of me and this was the school and I had no idea I still remember running my hand along the outside of this mud brick hut and the feeling of it and like the texture of it and and seeing these kids um, you know with a tin roof that had holes in it the water's coming through the the ground was dirt and it was turning to mud and I was just blown away that this was school in Uganda and so I, I, I sat down next to some of these kids most of them didn't have shoes on some of them didn't have t-shirts or ripped clothes they had their little pages with, with sort of broken pencils and their, their pages were even getting wet but they were still scribbling away and beautiful brown eyes looking up this amazing uh, Ugandan woman uh, who was teaching them and 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 they just they were so focused on every word that she was saying and it was, uh, you know, a moment that's kind of sends shivers down my spine today. I just still remember sitting there amongst those kids and it was eye-opening, but it was such a beautiful moment as well. And, mm. and I, I sat there for about half the day watching them interact through a, an English class and, and a maths class. And, and I was lucky enough that after that, a, a nurse from the medical centre come and met me and I was lucky enough to go to one of the kids' homes. And this little fella, Paul, his name was, we, we walked about three kilometres, a little bit more than that, down the road to, to the, another Mudbrick hut, his home. And he was so excited to, to show this Mzungu around, this white person around. And <laughs> Mzungu, we, we walked around his house. He showed me inside his little thatched mat that he slept on. And the house was immaculate. It was beautifully kept. Uh, we walked outside to a little outdoor kitchen and, and a little rabbit hutch where he, he kept his three rabbits. He was so proud of. I heard these little voices come out of the banana shumba behind Paul and, and it was this little little boy and little girl run out and, and they were about five and six years old just laughing, mzungu, mzungu, and they were holding my hand and we were walking around this beautiful family of three little kids. Paul was about 10 years old at the time and I was just blown away. I, you know, I, I just said, mate, thank, thank you so much. And, and I got down, I remember I got down my knees and I said, can I say thank you to your mother and father? And he said he never knew his father. And about uh, 12 months before that, his mother had passed away from HIV AIDS. You know, it, it, it dawned on me straight away, this beautiful young boy, 10 years old, he keeps his house in absolutely immaculate condition. He looks after his little brother and sister, five and six years old, and then has the courage and the resilience to walk three kilometers in the rain to sit down in a school that is falling down around him to learn, to try and better his life. And I tell you, to this day, I've never met a more inspiring person. Mm. It's um, you know, something that, that stands with me today. I still feel the same emotion as when I was standing on my knees and him telling me that he's lost his mother and father. It's something that has driven me every single day since, since that day. You know, that, that time that I spent after meeting Paul, I, I kind of spent the rest of the day with him and he, he showed me his routine and what he did. And, and again, I just can't speak highly enough of uh, the strength of this young, young boy. But I realized it's really common. It was a really common scenario across Uganda. You know, half the country, aged between zero and 16, half the country are children. So you know, the, the population is one that is so young. Um, and whilst that's a devastating stat, 
it's also somewhat encouraging to know if we can educate and give these kids an opportunity, they can change the tide of poverty very quickly. So we, you know, from that day, we, we got to work. We, we knew the UN development goals and, and the Millennium Development Goals at the time, what the focus was there. Um, we knew that we had to really narrow the focus and be very simple in our approach. And, and so we came up with what we call the four pillars. It was healthcare, infrastructure, education and sustainability. And we talked to everyone. We kind of whiteboarded all of the opportunities under those four areas and we prioritized them and we just got to work. We started with a, a brand new school building, a brand new nurses quarters for the health center, some new equipment for the health center, food security and, and, and agricultural projects. We dug a borehole for clean water and that took up all of the money we raised in that first year, about $120,000 was gone was gone pretty quickly. Uh, that was the start. That's where we kicked things off and kind of haven't looked back. It's been head down, bum up, keep working hard to give more opportunity to more kids across not only Uganda, but, but globally now. Oh my gosh, Tim, that is just absolutely incredible. There's so much to pull out of that. I mean, firstly, I love just what a yes person you were in those early days before you actually even really knew what you were signing up to, which I think it's just, you know, people taking a leap of faith and an opportunity and potential like that are the people who then get into situations where they can create things like the foundation and have the incredible impact that you've had. We spent about a month in Rwanda a couple of years ago and I found the exact same thing. There's just something so magical. It's so hard to explain about Africa, but I understand why so many people I know who have spent time there, they just can't stop going back. There's just something about it that really draws you in. So yeah, I think it's almost that you expect to have this intense sense of gratitude for what you have back here, but then actually learning a lot more from the children about resilience and happiness and stillness and joy Absolutely. than you expect. Like it's kind of a reverse revelation. And, yeah. uh, and it's absolutely Absolutely that I think that I've drawn so much more out than it's not cliche, but what I can give, I, I think it is so important to understand that, you know, in a, in a world that we live in, in the Western world, how much consumption and, and more and, and search for more there is versus a real contentment and love for what you have in, in uh, I'm not going to say Africa, but definitely from my experience in Uganda. But um, yeah, it's, it's something that, uh, you know, I continue to learn every time I go there. The stories, the, the connection, the experiences is something that just continues to educate me in more ways than I ever thought possible. And something else you said that you just had to start and you just started with four pillars and really went to the fundamentals of what you wanted to achieve. I think that's really important too, because particularly in philanthropy, but also in anything, I think we get really bogged down by the enormity of things and often think, well, if I can't fix poverty, I'm not going to do anything at all. Cause you know, if I can't call on a plane and bring in millions of dollars of aid and fix the whole village, like I might as well not do anything. But yeah. if all of us did think that way, no one would ever get anything done. So I love that reminder of just start where you can with what you have. And, Absolutely. you know, if you can't do big things, do small things in a big way until you can do them bigger and bigger and bigger, which obviously you guys have since been able to do. Yeah. So tell us about that growth journey. I mean, the foundation has gone on to achieve incredible heights from that first 120,000 or, you know, whatever it was in the beginning, what have been your big milestones? Well, I think that's also the uniqueness of, of the foundation. You know, when you think a foundation, you, you probably typically, typically think that there's a check being cut to another charity organization, but we, we registered ourselves as an Aussie charity and then, and also a, a registered NGO in Uganda. And, and 
and essentially built it from the ground up. And it was all through real connection with the community and, mm. and really listening to what is it that they need. They know best on, on what they need and what, what kind of support and help they need. And we did that from day one. Now, it wasn't perfect and it took a long time to get it to a point that it is today. But we, we failed many times. We failed together and we, we learned along the journey together. And I think that was the most important thing on, on reflection is that you know, we're, we're all on the same journey mm. and there is, a real, there is a real hand in hand piece to this that makes it really unique. And those lessons then were taken to you know, different parts of Uganda and, and eventually to, to different projects across the globe. And I think that is the most powerful thing. We, we, we're able to take those learnings, adapt and, and create something even, even uh, more special. So we went from you know, at that first $120,000 raise, we sold some charity bags in, in maybe you know, a couple of hundred stores in Australia. And as we started to come back and tell the story to our team and, and our customer, you know, people wanted to know more. How, how can they support? How, how can they contribute? And before long, you know, after a few years, we, were, we introduced more products. Uh, there, was, there was water, we introduced wristbands. You know, we were raising up around sort of $3 million within sort of three or four years per year. So we we're moving into our fifth and sixth village and, and contributing to developing you know, better schools and developing, starting to really focus on developing teachers to, to offer better education. And then all of the surrounds to make sure that these kids had the best opportunity they had as soon as they stepped step foot into that classroom. So, so that growth came naturally. And, and, and I think luckily with the growth of the business, it went from just being in Australia to being a global company, you know, 20, 29 countries, 1500 stores, 25,000 people. And, and our ability to fundraise grew along with that as well. And, mm. you know, I remember uh, back in, I guess it was 2013, we, we made the commitment. And again, you know, we probably were raising around that $3 million mark. We said, okay, if we, if we can raise $40 million by 2020, we will develop 20,000 educational places. You know, that mission, when we released that, that just set alight this, this new um, energy and everyone really got behind it in a, in a bigger and better way. And, and again, it kind of held ourselves accountable as well. It's like, we're going to go after this. And I kind of fast forward to today and we've got, you know, now a, a, an organisation that, that is probably this financial year going to raise $25 million. Uh, We've just yesterday ticked over $110 million raised. <gasps> we sell a, a charity item every two seconds across the globe. Like, it is phenomenal. And uh, the response from our team and our customers has just gone way beyond where we thought we'd ever reach. And... And it's so special. You know, it's so special. It's special because we don't we don't ask for big donations of fifty or a hundred dollars or or whatever. We we say that one simple contribution of two dollars, you know, the world around and added up can make a huge, huge impact. And that's the that's the new age giving that we're sort of bringing to our, our customer, which is which is awesome. I think that's something that's so unique and that makes it such a beautiful project because it is tied in with this huge for-profit business, but allows in that way customers to engage without making a huge pledge. You can be a kind of philanthropist on mass with the rest of the customer base without having a million dollars or being really wealthy in your own right. It's lots of small, you know, lots of people's small generosity combined together and you guys have provided them with that vehicle to have an impact on mass. Yeah. And I think sometimes, you know, when there's a lot of charitable things going around on social media, for example, people often get really nitpicky around like they're just doing it for to look good or for whatever reasons. And it's sort of like who actually cares what the reason is for someone 
doing something if the effect and the impact they can have with that money is the same like who cares if this if they're giving and donating like yeah. that it it doesn't really matter and it's i think if someone buys something from cotton on and that goes towards the foundation without them even knowing that it doesn't matter that's why the impact is so big because you are bringing for profit in for a non not for profit purpose and that's just why it's so clever what you've done because the impact is there no matter what the intention. But then if you do have a beautiful intention, you can give more. I have so many tote bags and bottles of water at home. Like I've been on board since the very beginning and it really does make you feel like you're part of something from, yeah. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, that, again, the uniqueness of, of that model is is so important to us as well that we, we do feel not only the responsibility to the beneficiaries and, and the people we work with, but to our customer as well. You know, it doesn't matter if it is a thousand dollar donation or a two dollar donation. No, we want to prove that your money is having an impact, and and so that's um, really part of our education program for our team to understand what is it that they're doing, what is the the impact that they're making on the ground, and how do they convey that to our our amazing customer as well. So when they do buy that tote bag, they'll come back and, and buy another one or another item to be able to support the cause as well. So transparency, I think, is 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 key. Mm, absolutely. So I have a couple of questions still about the foundation's growth and what's next, but I also want to weave in a bit of the NATA and some of the struggles that you've had along the way. Yeah. And I think behind the scenes of this extraordinary growth and achievement is on a personal level, also a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes with your adapting to a new role and with the foundation that you're managing suddenly becoming bigger and bigger and bigger without having had a background in philanthropy beforehand. And then there's the reverse culture shock that you're having when you're coming home and, and self-doubt and yeah. compassion fatigue. You know, I think a lot of people have a struggle with burnout and productivity, but people who are in the caring professions or the philanthropic professions have even less incentive to stop because they can see the impact of their mission. So in amongst all of this and the big change that you're making, how has your personal behind the scenes kind of unraveled? Yeah. And that is a super loaded question, Sarah. I'm so, <laughs> <know>, so sorry. <laughs> I'm going to do my best to answer it as you know, brief as I can, I guess. The, the, for me, you know, to paint the picture a little bit, early days was, was the real struggle. I think, like you said, uh, culture shock. You know, coming back from Uganda, spending long stints there, then coming back home you know, to Australia was, was a challenge. It was a real challenge early on. And um, it took a long time for me to get my head around that. But, you know, I, I, the other big thing was we had three boys within three years. So, you know, not to forget that I have this beautiful wife, Celeste, at home trying to deal with uh, a young family and also me jetting off to, you know, 12,000 kilometres across the globe to, to do my work. So, you know, she was, she's been an incredible partner in all of this. And again, you know, early days, we, we had to really make some decisions. She, she wasn't working because we had three kids. We had to remortgage the house you know, two times to be able to afford to do this role. And, and they're serious things that we had to toss up. But I think together we knew it was the right thing and we committed to it. And her strength and resilience through those early years is just, I, I, you know, I can't understate that because I can't even think how hard that would have been for her not to have a partner next to her for some long stints and having to deal with, you know, beautiful boys trying to grow up in, in a world that, um, that was, you know, a real challenge in those early days. So, you know, that started off as a, as a really hard slog, but it was also, we did get a lot of energy. We were lucky enough to get the family, Celeste and my boys across to Uganda yeah. early on as well. So 
at least they had that feeling and that understanding of you know where does dad jet off to you know we spent a, you know a good a good stint overseas you know leading into christmas one year and it was beautiful you know to be able to share some of the relationships and, and people i'd met um with my family was was really a turning point for me and for us and and Celeste is an expert in, in early childhood learning. She got to help set up our first kinder in Uganda. And, and she was so involved and connected to that as well. And, and so, you know, it's now from there kicked on and, and become a very big piece of our family. And mm. we hold it very close to us, obviously. But at the same time, we talk openly about it as well. And, and, and that's really helped me to digest and work through things that have been a huge challenge for me as well. And and so it's, it's been a long journey. I think I've had a lot of coaching along the way and a, a lot of opportunity to be able to talk through, you know, the experiences that, that I face when, when I am overseas. And I think likewise, you know, a lot of our team that, that are exposed to the same thing as well. And we're very conscious of that as, as at the same time. You know, we, we have such beautiful relationships and, and great individuals that, that run the organisations in country, but at the same time, you know, we are exposed to a lot of things that, that um, you're probably not necessarily exposed to in a regular job. So um, for me, it was, it was that whole process of really unpacking um, what it is that I'm experiencing, what it is that I'm seeing and being very open about it. I, I think um, that probably didn't happen until probably four or five years into my role. And I think, you know, I, I probably called it early days as just building resilience and I was big and tough and anything that was thrown at me, I could take on and, and that created something that was going to be bigger and tougher for the next thing that I took on. And when, I, when in actual fact, it, it wasn't that way. It was something that I had to address as an individual and I had to address for my mental health and, and my well-being. And I had a great, a great coach in, in Trevor Hendy who I met, um, you know, it's probably five years ago now, more than that. Who, who really took me to another level in being able to unpack it. And he has, a, he has an incredible saying, you know, you have to feel it to heal it. That and is brilliant. It's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, and, it, and it's something that I always have to go back to as well because I can continue to bury things that, that, that you know, come up and, and things I need to address. But in, unless you really feel it, unless you go back to that moment or really understand and unpack it and, and spend the time uh, to do that then it will stay with you and it, it might be to your detriment as well it's something you and it works for anyone in any walk of life these are the things that um, you know can can bring you great mental health if you can deal with it and talk about it and find a way forward it's only going to be you know beneficial for you and, and and your mind that clarity is so important and something that um, you know even today I still I still challenge myself with and, and try and improve in that space yeah, I love that. It's such a valuable reminder that any type of life path that's fulfilling and worthy and challenges you, it it takes work on yourself. Like I love bringing this up all the time because especially, you know, even when things go perfectly and even when things are going really well, you change, people evolve, you go through stuff, you've got a lot of things to unpack, as you mentioned. And I don't think we talk about that as much. We talk, you know, about the figures of a journey and how the foundation grew and how wonderful the impact was. Yeah. But we don't think about all the stuff you had to process as a person behind the scenes to change your values and change, you know, your metrics for success and, and your worth. I love reminding people that all of us have to go through it, you know, on any pathway, but particularly in jobs where you have a really big impact. Yeah. And uh, I imagine that boundaries are a lot harder for you to put in place when you're like, oh, the children need me and they're not going to stop needing me. So, 
you know, it's hard to kind of rest and, and have boundaries. So, you know, how have your metrics for success and measuring life changed? And I imagine that's a very difficult question, given that you're kind of measuring your impact in the millions, but at the same time, you know, it's not all financial and it's about impact, but then how do you measure impact? And then to go with that question, if you could achieve one thing in your lifetime through the foundation's work, and if money and time were no limit, what would you do? Okay. What would you solve? The, the, and again, like metrics for me, they are truly important in, in terms of, um, you know, we've got to tell a story again as well. Like what, what are we doing with these funds and how are we making an impact? So I think that for the wider message areas, you know, metrics are, are really important. But for me personally, it, it comes back to, again, relationships. And, and probably the prime example is really, you know, I look at Paul, this beautiful young boy, who now, you know, many years down the track has, has gone through, um, you know, this amazing system we've put in place. And um, he came through and, and made it to university. Oh. He is a qualified accountant. He's got a job as a clerk. His little brother and sister are, are going through their own schooling journey. And I, you know, my metric is when I sit down with Paul and I listen to this beautiful, well-spoken, absolutely articulate young man, talk about his journey with a smile on his face and uh, with such passion, that is the metric for me. Like you can, you can feel it through your body. And I could listen, I sit down, I could listen to him for hours. And that is, that is I, like it's, it's further than satisfaction. It's just, uh, it's, it's way out of this world. It's hard to describe, but it's, that's the one that, and I'm, and I'm in a privileged position where I can see so many more kids like Paul and young, young adults now talk to their journey and talk about how they're going to come back and make a difference in their community. Mm. And that is like, they're in the, the hundreds of thousands now. So it's, it's, it's incredible, you know, and, and the momentum that's being built. These are the kids that are going to carry the, the, the foundation forward. These are the young people that are going to carry the foundation forward. So I, I love that. That's the, that's the metric. I don't know if you can call it a metric, but it's the, it's the important thing for me. It's the feeling that you get. It's the um, validity of the work that we're doing and it is, it's real. So that's the, again, that there's nothing that beats that. That's an incredible answer. And I think that's so interesting because you like me and like many of us did come from a background where things were measured very financially and very, um, you know, external validation wise rather than internally the feeling that you get, which you can't measure, you know, you can't really measure the impact of changing someone's life that extensively. Yeah. But I love that, that that's the metric you go after because that's actual change, which it is, is, is yeah. so, so wonderful. And what about if you could change one thing in your lifetime, what problem would you solve? Uh, well, you know, I, again, there's probably two parts of this. I think I love looking back on the journey and, and I actually spoke about this recently with, um, with my wife about how we, we just wouldn't change anything because it's all led to this point and it's all a lesson in life. And I think you've got to celebrate that. And, and we've seen some hard times, we've seen some tough situations. And, and although we, we, we would love to change it because of various reasons, you, you've got to sit with it and you've got to be, proud of the journey you've taken and, and also understand that it is a lesson and, and learning all along the way. But I think overarching, what, what would I change? I think that, again, I, I don't know, like, you know, the common answer would be inequality and poverty and everything else. But it's, I think for me, it's just how, how people view others across the globe. I think there is an element of compassion and an element of equality that we don't, we don't all have. 
And if mm. we had the magic wand, that would be the difference. Because if we, if we approached everything with that kind of compassion and consideration, we would undoubtedly be in a better place, whether it's poverty or the environment or um, economic circumstances. It, it is the, the catalyst, I believe. Yeah, amazing. So before we move to the last section, what is coming up for the foundation that you're excited about? I think there's some new schools coming up in Uganda and Thailand. And what are some of the foundation's product highlights of this year or next year or, yeah, whatever you're really excited about? Yeah, it is super exciting. I think like to to sort of take a step back a little bit, we've, we've done a lot of work, um, you know, expanding out of Uganda in, in recent years. We're now working in South Africa, which has been an amazing journey in itself, uh, and Thailand along the border of Myanmar with, uh, uh, you know, long, young learners that have come across the border there. Um, so, you know, the, we're faced with our own challenges across each of those areas. And then um, really importantly, our work with Indigenous communities here in Australia, which um, is super, super powerful in itself. So, so much going on with each of those uh, areas, you know, into the future. We do have three new schools in Uganda, which are about to open up. We call them the, the BKN schools, Punjako, Chatera Kera and Ntebi Zodungu. So, um, <laughs> they are, you know, again, just, you know, we, we do pride ourselves on, on establishing great sustainable schools. So, the school builds... Uh, architecturally designed, they're, they're an amazing environment, they're inspiring to step into. We believe that these kids deserve the best and, and when we talk about the best, they should be world-class. So even though they're in a rural community in, in Uganda, they should have a, cl a classroom and a space that looks as good as anywhere else in the world. And, and so these, these build, buildings are architecturally designed, they have won awards, um, but they're also importantly sustainable. So they've got low maintenance costs. Um, you know, when the kids go to the bathroom, there's, there's clean waste removal. There, there are biodigesters which capture the gas, um, you know, from these toilets and they can use it for cooking. So there's a reduction in cost in, in, in fuel used as well. Oh. And then we've got just these beautiful spaces as you walk through that's not only inspiring for the kids, but, but uh, great motivation for the teachers as well which then lends itself to the teacher's accommodation on site. And so their own self-contained amazing environments where we're rolling out three more of those in, in Uganda. Uh, we're just stepping into our second uh, campus in, in South Africa as well and a, a school in a township called Kormashu, um, just outside of Durban in South Africa. And, and again, a, a, a beautiful story that sort of sits behind that, which you know, if I had more time, I'd love to you know, dive into that at some stage. And then, uh, you know, we've got our second school in Thailand, which we're stepping into as well uh, in uh, Maesot along the, along the border of Myanmar. So, yeah, when we talk about schools opening up, it's not just that physical uh, presence, but, but everything as soon as that child wakes up in the morning, what do they need access to to be successful? So uh, making sure that they have the best of health care, um, that they have support uh, to make sure that they are healthy and feeling you know, they've got nutritious meals, they're stepping into school on a, you know, with a full belly and they can really give it their best shot. And, mm. and so there's a lot that goes around into that and, and our local teams that really make that happen. So they're the exciting things from a, a project perspective. And then from a, a product perspective, we've, we've just actually launched our aluminium water bottle, which has been an evolution of us trying to you know, get away from single-use plastic. And, 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 you know, we did have the single-use plastic water bottles for quite a few years that moved to 100% um, recycled plastic. And now the evolution is um, removing plastic altogether and introducing 
an Aussie first, which is the aluminium water bottles. So that's just launched. It's been it's been massive. Um, but then you know through COVID, we've we've listened to the customer and and obviously the the number one thing that they're after is is face masks and and we introduced those as well and mm. and amazingly you know generated in in what was 11 weeks five million dollars off the back of introducing face masks so wow. uh, which was just mind-blowing sarah so again helping support people through covid but at the same time you know contributing 100 percent of those funds to come on foundation projects to change lives so uh, just finding new ways that um you know we can offer the customer a way to take action that is relevant and and uh, we'll, we won't stop innovating in that space either. Mm, you have such an interesting kind of dual role between you're not just the GM of a foundation that operates with its own, you know, within its own philanthropic world. You're also kind of business developing and working on product and customers. But, you know, there's like such a dual element to the way that you think about the way that you're doing your role, which I think is so interesting because you kind of get a little bit of both. You still get that real business element over here in product development and innovation, but then it's also actually translating into real impact. And it also reminds me that even massive, massive organizations like Cotton On and the Foundation, even you guys do things in iterations. You do what you can with what you've got at the time. You know, you did plastic first because that's what you could. And then you worked on making it recyclable. And now you've, you know, innovation takes time. And I think we're all very, very impatient with ourselves and want to see results straight away. But things do happen in versions and chapters, and I love that. They do, and you've got to you've got to stay the journey, don't you? You can't you can't waver. There's always innovation. There's always new ways to do things and better ways. So uh, you got to get keep pushing on. But I think, like to your to your point, it is an amazing it's an amazing diverse role. Um, but there's too many people to to reel off and count on how much support that you know I'm giving in this role as well. Like the, the guys that are so passionate about the work that we do, it just permeates through the business, and, and everyone wants to put their hand up and, and make a difference, which is truly amazing. Oh, wonderful! And it's another example as well. You know, I often try and remind people that being an entrepreneur is not the only way to seize your joy. You know, you could find your yay being an intrapreneur in so many organizations that really, really support you having the same amount of innovative thought and creativity. It's just in a different structure. And I think Cotton On would be and the foundation, you know, would be such a wonderful place to work because you are allowed that creativity and innovation, you know, innovative thinking. Mm. But I also would love to know, and this is the very last section called Play TA, where we separate your working identity and productivity from who you actually are which I mentioned, you know, your job and the amazing impact that you can have would be quite consuming at times and also hard to sort of ever totally switch off because obviously the world still needs the things that you're trying to do. How do you play? How do you make time for things that are just for joy? You're not trying to have any impact with them or get better at them or, you know, I'm a bit of an A-type, so I even try and kind of like win at resting. Like what are the things that make you forget what time it is? Yeah, well, you know, for me, Sarah, it's like my family's number one for me. I just love spending time with them. And, but the great thing is they're all so different. So, you know, whether we're, we're spending family time together or we're carving off one-on-one, it's always so varied. You know, we're either going for a surf or we're going bike riding or running. Uh, or we can find, you know, like myself and Celeste sit down and do a yoga session. Like it is, and I love variety. That's kind of me. I, I don't like to settle <laughs> for one thing. So it actually works out well. So again, I'm so super fortunate that I can do it in that way and that I've got 
you know, now four boys that are totally different in, in different avenues, but find, you know, really cool things to do with them. And, and I think for me, you know, that, um, you know, it's still a consistent practice of, of mindfulness and, and finding a way to clear my mind, no matter what you're doing, you know, whether you are pre-COVID and we're traveling and it's pretty hectic, finding ways to continue to, to clear my mind and, and refresh. And, and I think that is, that is so important, you know, finding the time, making the time to, to do that um, is, is critical. Do you do any dumb stuff like Netflix Heaps or like trashy shows? Heaps of stuff like that. <laughs> we, <laughs> I'm like, reassure me here. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely. We we love Netflix. It's just we don't. The only problem is we never get to binge. Like we get to we get through two episodes and it's like, oh, there's one kid who wants to do something else, <laughs> yeah. or we're just that zonked. We just we're out. So you know, to find that four or five hour block to just binge, you know, like a, a few episodes in a row, we. Uh, we're always dreaming of that, so we just got to do it one day. Totally. I'm very glad you have that brainless activity as well. <laughs> just to finish up, what are three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation? Uh, yeah, well, you know, there's a few random things. I think one uh, one is I, I did have dreadlocks when I was at university. So that was, uh, that was a, a, a wild time. That was, and yeah, like, I was the bun of all the jokes, you know, from my mates during uh, during uni when I had those. So they came off pretty quick, to be honest. <laughs> I, you know, one of the one of the cool things, and actually, you know, an amazing thing. I I, I was given a, a indigenous name up in uh, Yitakala in the community we work in, a Yongle name by a beautiful woman called Jalinda. She gave me the name Wepara, which is uh, the meaning essentially is calm water. And and so probably, you know, honestly. One of the most um, amazing things that you know I've ever been given, and and one of the most rewarding things. So um, that's kind of that's super special. I don't often share that with people, but it is an, an amazing thing, and I'm, I'm truly honoured to be given that name. Uh, and then you know probably the other thing is Celeste and I are massive Red Hot Chili Peppers fans. <laughs> <laughs> For our firstborn, Kobe, Kobe, who is our son. When he was uh, when he was growing in his mum, we we read the book uh, Scar Tissue, which uh, for oh. those who read it, if you've read it before, Sarah, such a good book. Yeah, it's it's a great book, but it's probably not you know it's probably not bedtime reading for the little bub in, in the tummy, but that's okay. You know, like it's um it's just something we love and we love the the chili peppers. So yeah, there are probably a few random things that, that you know not too many people know about me. I love them. They're always, it's one of my favorite questions because you just find out all this stuff. That's like, that's the human behind the role. You know, we hear all the stuff about your work, you being, you know, work you, dad you, you know, it's just nice to hear all all the fun facts. (laughs) And then the very last question, since I love quotes so much, what is your favorite quote? I um I love uh, you know what I mentioned before you have to feel it to heal it again um, I can't go past that I mean there's so many great quotes but that just to me I, I've just come back to it weekly almost daily it's just such an important mm. an important quote for me and and I guess you know in this time of even even going through COVID and and I've used it for some of my family members and definitely um, you know, close friends on it's such an important time to stick with it, you know, understand the way you're feeling and be okay with that. Like that's okay. And trying to sort of dig a bit deeper and find out the reasons why you're feeling that way and being able to share that, um, I think is really important. And, and it's always the catalyst, that quote for me. If I'm off, if I'm feeling off, I can ask myself that and I can deep dive myself. Um, but if you can't do that yourself, ask someone else to help you do it. Cause I think it's so important. 
That is an excellent reminder. I'm a serial masker. I think I uh, I tie my identity up so much in coping that then I'm like, yeah. I don't feel anything. I don't feel anything. It's fine. But I love that, you know, that's going to be a catalyst for me as well. So thank you so much for sharing and thank you so much for joining. This was such a wonderful chat. I'm so excited to hear about everything the foundation is doing and huge, huge credit and congratulations to all of you. Thanks, Sarah. It's been a great chat. I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, thanks to everyone who's who's supported along the journey. It's just been remarkable. And uh, and here's to the next steps in the journey. Can't can't wait to keep, keep rolling. Absolutely. Well, I'll make sure to include links to the new bottles and anything else that you guys might have going on. And thank you so much for joining. Awesome. Thanks, Sarah. Well, this is another one of those stories where I had interacted with the foundation and long since been an avid cotton on shopper, but had never much thought about the people behind the scenes. I love diving into the ways TA behind the impact we see around us. And I'm so, so grateful to Tim for jumping on the show and to you guys for making the show possible. I don't know about you, but this makes me want to load up on totes and face masks and their new aluminum bottles. I'll include links in the show notes so you can get around them too. If you enjoyed, please do share tagging at Cotton On Foundation and myself so we know what you think. I hope you're having an amazing week and a seizing your yay.